entertaining while often filled with all kinds of kernels of just human insight about the human condition were almost always tragic, often scary. And, and Narcissus was one of those stories, one of those stories that ranked high on the list of tragic and, for us humanly speaking, scary. He was the son of a river god and a nymph. And so consumed with pride was he that he would scorn anyone that fell in love with him, anyone who expressed any kind of appreciation or love for him. He would despise it because he felt so above it. And there was just relational wreckage in his wake. And so Nemesis, this goddess, sees it and lures him to a pool where he sees his own reflection but doesn't know it. He sees it and he falls in love with it. And so enamored by this reflection is narcissist that he, he will never leave that pool. No matter what's happening around him, no matter what's going on, he's fixated. And some versions of the myth say he fell in that pool and he died. Others say he just simply sat there, stared at himself until he died. But the lesson is the same. What we fix our eyes on, what we seek as glory and see as glory is controlling and consuming and life-changing. We are hardwired to be glory seekers. We look for it everywhere. We're in search of it everywhere. The question is, where do we think that glory is? To what place are we looking and crying out, glory, glory? Where we fix our eyes means something. It both expresses our souls and it affects our souls. This is Luke 11.34 where Jesus says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of light. Of darkness. So, where we fix our eyes brings consequences, whether good or bad. It controls us. By God's design, we become more like those objects we fix upon. This is Psalm 115 Idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. So we worship an image, we will become like that image. We worship and endure some act of creation, we will more and more take on the forms of that creation, mute, dumb, ultimately doomed. But praise God, the opposite is true. When we see and behold and adore Christ, by the Spirit we become more like Him. This is 2 Corinthians 3 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And then he says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We all look to something. We are all becoming like something. The question is what? Who? This matters. 
every day, and God knows this. Not just what we look to with our physical eyes, but even more importantly, what we look to with the eyes of our hearts. It's not just what we see in physical time and space. It's now when we close our eyes, what do we dwell upon? What do we think about? Whose image are we looking to? Who are we trusting? What are we believing? Because you can be physically blind and see. And you can have perfect 20-20 vision and be blind. That's why Jesus often said to some in his audience, blind guides. That's why often Jesus healed the blind and gave them sight. Not because he thought in this life, you know what, you really need to physically see to get around. No, it's, it's, he's making a point. What I'm going to do for you physically is what you really need spiritually to see. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us light. And then it tells us where to put our faith. So the spirit illumines, gives us sight, and the gospel points. Here it is. This is 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim, Paul said, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the face of Jesus Christ. This was especially important for the Corinthians who loved to look to human images. They loved Paul and Apollos and Cephas they love to glory in those figures. So Paul's going to say, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Fix on him. Look to him. And so last week we looked at Romans 5.2 where Paul said, through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we settled around that phrase, this grace in which we stand. What does that mean? And this week we're going to begin with that phrase, the hope of the glory of God. Because it's that phrase that now tells us where to look. Where to fix the eyes of faith. Where to long. Where to bank our expectation. Because we all arise in the morning probably hoping for something. What is it? Where do we put our expectations and desires? So if we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, stand upon the ground of grace, then Paul's telling us we should be looking with joyful expectation to the glory of God. What Paul calls the glory of God. That's where our hope belongs. That's where our view belongs. And so what does that mean? To look with joyful expectation toward the glory of God. So I don't want us to merely sort of theorize or speculate about that question this morning. I want us to see it in action. I want us to see that question lived out and answered in a man's life. 
so that we can sort of fix our eyes, our gaze, the gaze of our souls upon that same place through his account, through the scripture, that we would, by God's grace, see and anticipate and long for and be controlled by what Stephen saw. Acts 7, verse 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So there's two things I want us to consider today from this passage. One is the object of this gaze. What is it that Stephen is seeing? That through his account, God wants us to believe and to see. And then secondly, what are the effects of this gaze? What does he see, and then what does that bring about in his life? The passage starts with, now when they. Well, who are they? According to Acts 6.12, this is the council that Stephen has brought before because he, full of grace and power, according to Acts 6.8, had been doing great signs and wonders among the people, So that certain members of the synagogue of the freedman and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with him. So he's doing signs and wonders. He's preaching. And these opponents of the gospel, opponents of Christ from the dispersion, North Africa and Asia Minor, are going to come and dispute with him. But they're no match for the wisdom that God had given to Stephen. And so, left to no other course of action, they bear false witness against him. They bring those who would accuse him wrongly, and they drag him before the council, which is this group of rulers and scribes and elders of Israel, probably members of the priest's family that are going to be there, who sort of act as a judicial body for the nation there in Jerusalem. They're going to drag Stephen to that group, and this is the same body that tried falsely and mocked and put to death Jesus. This is that same council that just a few chapters earlier are going to threaten Peter and John not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. This is going to be the council that is going to, in the same way, beat some of the apostles just a couple chapters earlier. So they're going to bring Stephen before this council. And they heard these things. Well, what are these things? Well, generally, Stephen's sermon, but in particular, his closing statement. 
in verse 51 of chapter 7 where he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels, but did not keep it. I mean, ouch. That's what he's going to say. They have accused him of speaking against the temple of Jerusalem, against the law, against Moses. So he's going to deliver this sermon where he's going to go right back to Abraham, who he's going to say saw the glory of God. And then walk right through the nation's history and God's gracious dealings with them, despite their stubborn, hard hearts, but how God has cared for them and guided them to this place And then the religious leaders are going to listen quietly and intently until he utters that last paragraph. He's going to connect the dots and say, okay, you're not on the side of the prophets. You're on the side of your fathers that put these prophets to death. And you're on their side, and what makes that most evident is you took the righteous one, the end of the law and the prophets, and you murdered him. And that phrase, the righteous one, would have been a known statement from just different words in Isaiah and Jeremiah that refer to the Messiah. So it's an outright statement that you have put to death God's Messiah, the righteous one. Just as your fathers persecuted the prophets, so you have betrayed and murdered the righteous one. So the irony is thick. Here's the one that they have accused of misunderstanding the law, of misunderstanding the temple, of misunderstanding Moses, of speaking against them. And Steve's going to say, actually, none of you get the point of the law and of Moses and of the temple. And that's most evident in the fact that you have taken the very righteous one who is the fulfillment of all these things and you've put him to death. And it says they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So just the weight of his words landed on them like bricks on a a pane of glass and just shatters. It says they grind their teeth at him because they're just so set on edge. Have you ever been that enraged, that angry? Where all you can do is just stick your tooth together. And it's all you can do to hold back the venom of what you want to say and the wrath of what you want to do. So they're so infuriated they could explode. Yet it says of Stephen, but he, in contrast, full of the Holy Spirit. So this is a theme that's building in the book of Acts that as Peter and John are first brought to the council and threatened before the council, it spoke of Peter and he filled with the Spirit. Then the apostles, a couple chapters later, when they're brought there, threatened again, where Gamaliel's going to have to intervene, it's going to save them, and they filled with the Spirit. And so here we see Stephen filled with the Spirit, that his opponents are hearing the word preached and becoming filled with rage. Stephen, in contrast, filled with the Holy Spirit, is being compelled by the Holy Spirit to look to heaven. So something in the, there with the Spirit in him compels him to look up. 
and he sees, enabled by the Spirit, into heaven. And the question is, what does he see? What is the object of his gaze? And the passage tells us the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's what he sees. Which means here the display of God's supreme and stunning majesty. But especially the majesty of the Father and the Son together. And Christ at the right hand. That's what he sees. Gazing upon the glory of God here means gazing upon the splendor of the Father and the Son as one. Christ reigning in righteousness. He sees him there, reigning. The unveiled display of his beauty. There's no obstruction. He sees it. The unobstructed view of his majesty. The unopposed exercise of his power. He's at the right hand. Who's opposing him there? The sin-covering glory of his grace, because how do you think Jesus looks standing there? As a lamb who has been slain, as one who has paid for sin, as one who by God's grace has covered our sin and washed it away. He sees the mountain-leveling might of his judgments, because here is the throne that he sees the kingdom-building strength of his righteousness. That's why he's there, risen in heaven, because he's declared righteous. The boundless, never-exhausting depths of his love, the never-ceasing delights of his presence, and on and on and on, probably things that you wouldn't have time to put words to, what the Spirit enabled Stephen to see. Seeing glory is seeing God as God and Christ as Christ, exalted with the Father, with angels perpetually flying about, perpetually crying out in perpetual worship. The saints are there glorified, arrayed in splendor, bowing and worshiping the Lamb who has been slain, all things being put under his feet, all things prepared for his reign. It's coming. And a great multitude in heaven just waiting for that signal, just waiting for the Father to say it's time. Cry out. This is it. Revelation 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. Praise our God. All you his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So Stephen gazed and he saw the place where that will happen. The place where they're preparing for that moment. It's like you walk in here when we're preparing for a wedding and you're going to notice. Everybody doesn't just show up a minute before and get going. There's arrangement. There's build-up. There's adornment. There's flowers. There's all that's going to be involved in that ceremony. That's what the saints are there even now preparing. Stephen gazed and saw the place where Jesus and Father dwelt in unveiled glory, the place where those words would be exclaimed and where all these things would come to pass. And so ultimately, someday, this will happen to all those whose faith is in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We will see. You will see. Which is, interestingly, an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Did you know he prayed for this? What we see happening here with Stephen, this is John 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To see my glory that you have given me. And what is that glory? His union with the Father and their love for one another. Through Stephen, this first Christian martyr, God is confirming to all his saints that Christ is where he said he would be. At the right hand, the Father and the Son as one, the Father loving the Son since before the foundation of the world. And that's why he says, the glory you've given me, I'm going to give them. That they can be one with each other and one with you. And so the glory of God cannot be detached from union with God and the union of Father, Son, and Spirit. Stephen sees that the Father sent the Son into the world to be the righteous one, to be crucified in our place, to be this unblemished sacrifice for sin, to be raised from the grave in power, to be vindicated as pleasing to God, and then to ascend to heaven and to be there waiting, preparing a place for us. So for all those whose faith is fixed on him, who are destined to dwell with him forever, that is glory. That's what Stephen sees. This is Colossians 1, where Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden from ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, that is the hope of glory. So there's a question for us, there's a question for you, for me. Is Christ in you your hope of glory? Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? Probably not. Certainly not for me. So we have to pray, Lord, make that my hope of glory. Christ in me. Because we all spend our days looking upon, dwelling upon, meditating upon, waiting for, dreaming about, praying to see. But what is it? What do we bank on? Do we want to see what Stephen saw? Peel back the roof, peel back the clouds, look through the lens of Scripture, and there's God in all his majesty, and the sun in all his splendor at his right hand. This is one just priceless value of the Scripture. It's, it's this window into the invisible. It helps us see what we can't see. It shows us what we physically can't grasp because we can see it now through Stephen's account. We see there by looking and believing here. That's why we preach the Bible. Because every other window known to man is a dead end. You can't see anything but man in it. But this window, look through these words, believe these accounts, and we see what Stephen saw. So we look and see there by looking and believing here. So filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven it says, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And that is the object of his gaze. And his enemies, as we will see, cannot bear that testimony. The one they just put to death is alive. That's what you're telling us? He's reigning in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. That's what you're saying? You imagine how that sounded to them? This one we crucified has risen and ascended, just as we sort of heard lots of people already saying. Here's now someone else saying it, but not just saying it, but seeing it. They don't want to hear it. It's too much for them. Jesus, whom you crucified alive. And then the irony of, okay, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Elijah, they're all there worshiping him now. The ones that you proclaim to be a part of, the ones that you're here accusing Stephen of being against. Well, Abraham, from whom you say you descend, he's there, and this is who he's worshiping. This is what he's seeing. But they didn't want to see it. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to know about it. And I just have to add, before Christ, before the Spirit intervened in our hearts, we didn't want to either. I can tell you just personally, if God had not lavished grace upon me, then news of God becoming flesh in Jesus, calling to repentance, living righteously, dying in my place for sin, 
and then calling me to repent of sin and turn and put my faith and hope in him who has been raised and now is ascended and living and dwelling there, well, that would have set me on fire as well. And so we have to realize that until God intervened, we were the audience. We were the ones who heard this and then cry out with a loud voice, stop their ears, rush together at him. Like wild animals, that's the image we're meant to see. Stop their ears, cry out with a loud voice to drown out his testimony, and then charge and seize him. They no more want to hear of the glory of Christ than, than Satan does. It makes the demons cringe. But I wonder here, do you think Stephen cares? I wonder, do you really think, now here's the scene, they're crying out, they're covering their ears, they're charging at him. Do you think he cares? That is, do you think he cares about this mob that's now rushing upon him to kill him? Because I wonder, has there ever been a man more pleasantly distracted? More pleasantly oblivious? To what's about to happen, given the glory that he sees. And even if he's aware, okay, they're about to kill me, do you really think he minds? Okay, so you're about to help me there. What I see, God's not going to use you to get me there. They're threatening to send him to what he just saw. And so, like Jesus before him, they cast Stephen from the city and they put him to death. All the while, it says, laying their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come back to him in a minute. I want us first to look at just the effects of this gaze. The object of that gaze, the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand. But now the effects of this gaze to see that Stephen doesn't just sit down and stare. He doesn't just sort of drift out of the moment. But things are going to begin to happen in him and from him that we're meant to see. Because a gospel-induced gaze controls and compels him to action. It should compel us to action. Because firstly, gazing upon glory compels us to speak of what we see. Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, he just can't help himself. He sees it, now he has to say it. He must speak of the things that he sees because gospel-seeing people are always gospel-speaking people. Christ-beholding people are always Christ-proclaiming people. Because when we see and hear glory, we have to tell people about it. We've all experienced this at the water cooler the morning after the Super Bowl or at the water cooler the morning after whatever. And what are people talking about? Whatever they heard and saw the night before that from their point of view was astounding. And they just have to talk about it. They have to replay it. Hey, do you remember when? Hey, this part, did you see that? And usually if they're, you know, are they talking about it as if bored? Yeah, remember that play? On our team, they scored, and then is it dreary? Or is it full of enthusiasm? Because they've seen glory. So here, Stephen, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
In Acts 3, Peter and John, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to heal a lame man, then proclaim the gospel to all the onlookers. And then in Acts 4, they're going to be arrested and brought to the council. And then they're going to be threatened by them. Verse 18, chapter 4, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whatever, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Like, you decide what you've got to do. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So Stephen here is moved in the same way. And again, see what he says. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's really clear and simple. It's not complicated. Paul said the same thing, 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Just the plain, simple, historical facts of what God has done in Christ and why it matters. And so Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's interesting, too, that those are the same basic words that Jesus spoke before Caiaphas and the council, the same words that's going to enrage them against him. This is Matthew 26. It says, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Wow. Death. Really? And the answer is, to unbelieving ears, yes. To those who seek to establish a righteousness of their own, yes. To those who would commend themselves to God by their moral upright posture, by their behavior, by their good deeds, by their social standing, then yes, this is terrible, blasphemous news. So without the Holy Spirit, all would scorn and despise this news. We would scorn and despise this news, just as this mob around Stephen will do. They think they see, but in fact they're blind. They think they hear rightly, but in fact they're they're deaf, and now they encounter someone who really sees, who really hears, who now is going to claim to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, 
and they're going to cry out, this is blasphemous. He deserves to die. But nonetheless, gazing upon glory compels Stephen to proclaim what he sees. Gospel-seeing people are gospel-proclaiming people. But then secondly, it also makes him fearless. Gazing upon glory makes us fearless in the face of human opposition and even death. I mean, he's already said some hard things to this group. You stiff-necked people, (laughs) uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This sense, okay, the Holy Spirit's always working, always operating, always doing things in the world around us. You're always resisting him. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's bold. That's God-pleasing, not man-pleasing. And he's not being mean. He's not being nasty. He's just confronting them with the truth of who God is, of what God is doing, and what they're actually doing in response. So what it means is he actually loves them more than their applause, which was never true of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They always loved the praise of men more than anything. Yet here's Stephen, who's more concerned with souls that are hearing than the applause of those who hear. And so once they begin to rush him, we even see there's no mention of terror in his eyes. No mention of panic. No begging for his life. No cowering over. He knew to whom he belonged. And now he knew where he was going. And this just freed Stephen to submit himself to what Peter calls beneath the mighty hand of God. There was nothing in this life he was holding to so tightly that made death a terrifying idea. And there was nothing he was so afraid of that he was going to that made death a terrifying idea. And there's a lesson there for us. Is there anything we're holding on to in this life so tightly that death is terrifying? Or anything we're so in dread of facing that it makes death a terrifying reality. And so for you as a Christian, as someone redeemed by the grace of God, someone securely in his hands, are you growing in your lack of fear of death? Is the Spirit bringing about just this fearlessness? Something we should pray for, just a fearlessness before those who would kill us. Or if you're here and you don't believe what Stephen believes, you don't see in faith what he sees in reality, then you should be afraid. Because this life is as good as it gets. Because there is something on the other side of death that is worse than anything in this life, that every agony of this life only gives a foretaste of. And so Stephen is sort of creating this fork in the road Or how do we see and believe and trust upon what he sees that we can face death without fear and human opposition without fear 
Because gazing upon glory makes us fearless in the face of human opposition and death. But then also gazing upon glory helps us then surrender to the sovereign purpose and plan of God. Look at what Stephen says next. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's what he cries out as they stone him. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so hopefully the parallels between the stoning of Stephen and the crucifixion of Christ are becoming all the more apparent to us. That Jesus spoke of the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, so does Stephen. Jesus stood as a lamb silent before his shearers with neither fear of man nor fear of death, so does Stephen. In Matthew 27, 50, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And here Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus was. And so he does not see himself as a man unto himself, not anymore. He doesn't see himself as his own, but sort of bought and paid for in the possession of another, a bond slave, an ambassador, a steward of the manifold grace of God, a messenger, someone to speak of what he sees and what he hears. He sees his destination, and then he surrenders to the means that God has chosen to get him there. He sees, okay, there's where I'm going. Here's the means God has chosen to get me from here to there. And he commits himself under the mighty hand of God. Like Jesus, he commits himself to him who judges righteously. So think about it. If you see the paradise on the other side of the river, do you really care if you go by boat or bridge? I mean, it's like, okay, we're going to the promised land. Part the Jordan, build a bridge, fly us over. We don't care. And certainly Stephen doesn't. He's surrendered to the sovereign purpose and plan of God. Because most of us, if we're honest, the death we pray for is something quiet in our sleep. Right? Help us get our fill of life and then sort of lay our head on a pillow at night and then just in the middle of a really sort of nice dream, the Lord just sort of lifts us to heaven. And for some of us, that may be what we see. But for many, it will be this, beaten to death. So there has to be a resolve, again, through the account of Stephen, through his testimony to go, this is okay. That God appoints a peaceful, in our sleep, death, or stoning at the hands of a mob, surrendering to him who judges righteously. And I say that because I think that mentality, that preparation actually changes the way we live now. Now how we live in our workplace. Now how we live in our home. Now how we live in our neighborhood. Because much of our hesitation to speak, much of our hesitation to proclaim is to avoid these very kinds of moments. So gazing upon glory helps us surrender to the sovereign purpose and plan of God. And that's not all it does. It also humbles Stephen and makes him gracious. Gazing upon glory humbles us and makes us gracious. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
Why a loud voice? God hears, even if he says it silently, right? Why cry out loud so they would all hear? So that, that even then in his death, they would hear, this is how the saints die. This is what they pray for. And then secondly, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure he's entirely under his own control. So he's going to cry out, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. Like Jesus on the cross, he appeals to the Father to forgive those putting him to death. He appeals for their salvation. I mean, wow. Like, I have trouble praying for people who cut me off on the interstate. Let alone praying for someone who is stoning me to death. Yet Stephen intercedes for those around him. And we know for certain, this is beautiful, that God is going to hear that prayer for at least one person there. Who is it? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was among those from Cilicia who were arguing with Stephen to begin with. That's where he would have come from, Cilicia. And confounded by Stephen. Isn't that amazing to think about? There's a time where Saul was confounded by reasoning from the Scripture, where he faced wisdom from the Scripture he could not handle. He had no answer for unable to handle the wisdom God had given to Stephen. It's Saul of Tarsus who's going to watch over the cloaks of those who are going to stone him to death. It's Saul of Tarsus, it will say in Acts 8.1, that approved of his execution. Or what Paul will later call murder. That the day will come where he will see himself, I'm a murderer, is what I was. And then in a short while, Saul of Tarsus will get just a little glimpse of what Stephen sees and what's going to happen to him. He's going to go blind. I mean, he's just going to get a little little sliver of what Stephen sees in glory and he's going to go blind. Scales are going to cover his eyes, which I've wondered, is that part of what saved his life? (laughs) Like the veil's going to be pulled back. He's not just going to go blind. Scales are going to come over because he can't handle what is there. But this Saul of Tarsus is going to get a glimpse. On the road to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then scales are going to cover his eyes. He's going to have to be led by hand to Damascus. And then there, by Ananias laying hands upon him, Spirit helping, and God's going to give him sight. But not merely physical sight, but just actual sight of faith. He will spiritually see what he didn't see before in order to cast now his faith and his hope on him. And so when Paul wrote to the Romans, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, He wasn't just speaking from speculation. He wasn't just sort of theorizing about it. He had first witnessed it in Stephen. I mean, that's the first saint he ever saw die. And that's how he saw him die. 
that when Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he can say, I saw Stephen do it. He died rejoicing in that hope of the glory of God. Saul was there with his eyes and hopes fixed toward heaven as Stephen was, with the glory of God in view, with Jesus firmly planted at the right hand. I I just wonder, some of those questions I have for Paul when we get there, just, just how did that story replay back in your mind? And just you, you hear now that when, yeah, Stephen's going to cry out, forgive them. Don't hold this against them, what they're doing. So God redeemed Saul of Tarsus, gave him a new name, a new identity, where Paul now identifies himself a servant of Christ Jesus, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That God's going to fill Paul with that same Holy Spirit with which he filled Stephen. He's going to hand to Paul that same gospel message he'd handed to Stephen. He's going to give him the same wisdom from above that Stephen proclaimed. And this is Romans 8 where Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so Paul got it. But here in Stephen's life, I mean, Paul saw it. And so can we. We don't yet see physically what Stephen saw, but we have his testimony. And we have Paul's testimony. And we have the rest of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit living in us that by faith we can see We can see and read the Word of God. We can seek and trust in and cling to and hope in and long for the very same things Stephen longed for, the very same things Paul came to long for. We can wait for his appearing. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it means you can look to him and live means you can look to Christ, the righteous one, and believe. And in believing, be saved. You can turn from sin and trust in the sinless one who has paid for sin. You can learn to hope in the glory of God. But for you who are a follower of Jesus Christ, it means you can fix your eyes on Jesus. Praise God, the Christian life is not a complicated life. It's a hard life, but it's not complicated. It's like God says, okay, just look here. Just right here. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Well, what about my job? What about marriage? What about family? Well, yes, but fix your eyes on Jesus in your job. Fix your eyes on Jesus in your marriage. Fix your eyes on Jesus with your health. Fix your eyes on Jesus with your parenting. Fix your eyes on Jesus as a child in school. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fill in the blank. It says the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated where? At the right hand of the throne of God. See how often the scripture moves us back to that place? Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him who endured. And so there's the answer. How do I fix my eyes on him? Consider him. Think about him. Dwell upon him. Talk to him. Listen to him through his word. Consider him who endured such sinners or hostility from such sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. So you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. So what's the key to not growing weary? What's the key to not being faint-hearted? Fixing our eyes on him. Following him. So what it means is we can speak of what we have seen and heard. We know that from this passage. We can speak of what we've seen and heard. We can live fearlessly for the pleasure of God, not the pleasure of mankind. We can be humble and gentle in the world, eager to intercede in prayer, especially for those who persecute us. We can dwell upon what Stephen saw and all that the scripture helps us see. We can look to glory where the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is at the right hand with God, preparing a place for us. And then we can long for his appearing because he will come get us. That is ultimately how we will get to glory. God will fetch us there. According to Paul, the Thessalonians, in the twinkling of an eye, that fast, we're there. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Psalm 34. We can especially understand that promise in the light of Acts 7. Those who look to him are radiant. It's one of the things they said about Stephen. As they looked upon him, remember what they said about his face? It was shining like an angel. Why? Well, because he was looking to him and was radiant. And was he put to shame? Absolutely not. Because the millisecond of his death, the next, I think, words out of Stephen's mouth were, I knew it. Here I am. Here's what I just saw. And he's in front of it. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare now for the Lord's table, through which you give us these physical pictures of immaterial realities, these visible, tangible expressions of what is intangible, that is the the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for us. And so we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus this founder and perfecter of our faith who had himself a joy before him and because of that was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. Lord, make us like him. Fix us to him. And to him be the glory. In Christ's name, amen.